Welcome to Words Matter with Katie Barlow and Joe Lockhart. This is the Words Matter Library. Our guest today is a journalist, a writer, and a documentarian. His previous credits include The Atlantic, This American Life, and Mental Floss. He is the host of the Election Ride Home podcast, which gives listeners a 15 to 20-minute update on all of the day's 2020 election news. Chris Higgins, welcome to Words Matter. Thanks, Adam. It's great to be here. So this is your first campaign, correct? <laughs> My first campaign covering, yeah. I, I've, covering, lived, I've yes. lived through a few. Uh, yes, you've lived through a few of it. So I wanted to start off with what happens when you have a beat reporter, a slash nonfiction writer, and a documentarian who's suddenly thrown into an election. And, and I'm sorry, as somebody who's done this a little bit, not just any election, probably one of the more insane elections that uh, anybody will ever see, uh, hopefully. Uh, What is that like? What is that experience? (laughs) And why did you decide to become one of us psychopaths at this point in your life and career? Yeah, it's a legitimate question with a complicated answer that I'll try to boil down. This election was an emotional trauma for me, specifically. Uh, I quit drinking on Inauguration Day, probably forever. And what underlaid that was this idea that wow, this is consequential. This feels real challenging. And I kind of want to be fully awake during all of this. So I have been sober for whatever amount of time it's been now, you know, two and a half years. And when the opportunity came along to choose between doing a feature documentary or a daily show about the upcoming election that could change this situation, I said, I I think it's important to me as well as to the society at large, to get in there. And my my core skill is effectively taking a lot of information in, distilling it rapidly, and then reporting it back in a sometimes an oversimplified way, but, you know, a way that is understandable and has enough context. And when presented with this idea of a short podcast, I thought, that's a lot like Beats I've done before, And then I learned that maybe politics is a little bit different than beats I've done before. But that's how I got started with this. And I've been, we're about six months in. Today was show number 150. We do five days a week. So, Well, congratulations on that. And congratulations on the sobriety. I'm not sure wanting to being awake for all of this is necessarily great for everybody. But it's, I I understand the choice. You could probably tune in every night to Brian Williams to know exactly how we're past 1,020 days now. So Mm. you can tune in every night to know he does a Ted Koppel-like Iranian hostage crisis daily count of the Trump administration. So uh, (laughs) you you can keep track that way. Were you always a follower of politics? outside your day job? Absolutely. I'm an NPR kid. Uh, My father was always in broadcast media. He was involved in radio from early days of, you know, his life. And he was a station manager, a broadcaster. He also worked in cable TV. So I was exposed to national public radio, specifically the, the, the news and information stations, and to some extent classical music, but I didn't like that part. But the news and information from NPR and public broadcasting on television were the pillars of my understanding of the outside world forever. The the earliest memories I have are really of watching, I think one of the earliest TV members I, uh, memories I have is watching Ferraro give her speech at the convention because my parents wheeled out the black and white TV 
and said, you're going to watch this. And I was mesmerized by like, what is this box? And then they wheeled it back out again and took it away because we did not watch TV at that point. It was an interesting thing. But yeah, I've, I've been very engaged in politics as a lefty concerned citizen. And I have discovered <laughs> the difference in every single day getting deep into this world then having to emerge rapidly and summarize in a way that is not filled with vitriol or opinion necessarily, but also saying essentially to my audience, I am giving you permission to not flip out all day and refresh everything because that's my job. And at the end of the day, I'm going to give you the distillation of that. What I didn't really realize was that would have a little bit of a cost on me, but that's okay. That's what my job is, and we're making it work, right? I was going to say, and I'll get to that in, in a couple more questions, because I, I really do think that people like us who follow this is all day, every day, and in the minutiae. One of the things that I found interesting about your answer to the first question, and even your answer to the second question, is what I like about your podcast and your summary is it's pretty straight up just the facts. You describe yourself as a lefty. You say that you had some not great experiences with the election of the current president, the inauguration of the current <laughs> president. But you do give – and again, granted that we are at the point in this cycle where this is mostly Democratic primary stuff that you're dealing with on a daily basis. But you've added a section about uh, impeachment in three minutes or less, which we'll get to in again in a, in a minute. But mm -hmm. how do you filter – how do you keep that straight and narrow path? Because I assume that what you want to give your your listeners is, is that just the facts? How do you do that given your clear feelings about this? And again, all journalists have feelings about these things. I know I did work with some in Washington where I could, couldn't could tell you even after 10, 15 years of friendship whether they were Democrats or Republicans. Mm -hmm. But how do you keep that from seeping into your coverage? Look, I'm not going to pretend that it doesn't seep into the coverage. I think that the distinction is the, the, the format of the show and the nature of the show is designed to be meta news. It sits on top of an existing news ecosystem and says, you could be engaging with that news ecosystem, or you could just opt to engage with this meta news that is shorter and distilled. So when I perform that function, I'm asking myself of every piece, first off, is this news? And sometimes it's not news. Sometimes it is an explainer because a lot of what I run into is listeners who need explanations, especially around polling or technical matters or some historical matters, where I have to say, this is how this thing works. But primarily, the news has to be expressible as a candidate did a thing, here's what they said, and then here's what people said about that. The biggest challenge I find really the, with that is trying to avoid false equivalents because everybody has 10,000 takes in an attempt to create a parallel between themselves and the thing that occurred. And I try very hard to provide people, especially in the context of the primary, with saying, this is what the candidate says they believe. And is that consistent with the other things we've heard from that candidate? Here is audio of that candidate saying that thing, if I have it. And then surrounding that with, oh, and by the way, last month they said something different. And it's kind of up to you to, to fill in that gap. I'm not there to yell at you about what I think, because I think the majority of political media is really yelly. <laughs> I'm kind of sick of it. Yes, right? it is. 
And I think a lot of people are sick of it. It's one of the reasons we wanted to have you on today. Again, in this space is where we feature books, podcasts, other things that we like. And uh, I like your podcast. I like listening to it. I think it's a good summation. One of the questions I wanted to ask you is you talk about saying what candidate X said and then what here's what other people said about it. How do you get your information? Are you somebody who watches all of the news networks? I'm somebody who worked in a Republican White House, and I can tell you with a very straight face and very honestly that except for five minutes of a pre-debate commentary, believe it or not, I have never watched Fox News. Right. I just haven't. I didn't when I worked for President Bush. I didn't need to. I haven't since because I haven't wanted to. I watch MSNBC. I watch CNN. I listen to NPR. I listen to a whole bunch of other things. I read everything from Business Insider to the New York Post to New York Times, Washington Post Journal, all those things that we all read, all the political publications, 530. You know, you can go through it. But I don't read or watch right-wing media. Do you, to cover it, do you have to do that? Or do you stick to, again, the sort of straight, just the facts covered? Well, just to back up for a second, I like your podcast too. Thank you. (laughs) But to answer your actual question, so I have to bring in a substantial amount of story material and I have to do it in a very limited amount of time. So the way the the show works is it has to be up by 5 p.m. Eastern every day. That's drop date, right? If you don't get that, you're, you're done. You're toast. I've worked a deadline my my whole life. So that means you work backward from that. And what it means is for me on the West Coast, where we're three hours, I don't know if it's behind or ahead, but it's I'm earlier than you. So I wake up at three or four in the morning and I consume virtually zero television at all. And if I do, it's entertainment only or it's the debates or the candidate forums or whatever, much of which I get digitally anyway. What I did upon starting this thing was I developed a source list, uh, and it's mostly internet-based stuff, but it's The Guardian, uh, New York Magazine's Intelligencer, a couple of subsections of 538, a couple of Twitter lists. One of them is a C-SPAN list of all the presidential candidates. So you can filter through the candidate stuff and find a mix. Sometimes that leads to stories. A U.S. political people list that's maintained by a friend of a friend. NBC News, ABC News, Washington Post, New York Times, Axios, Talking Points Memo is in here, a thing called Memorandum, which is an automated thing finder, topic finder that aggregates things. Gosh, there's a couple of Reddit things where these are like candidate-specific Reddits. So there are certain candidate little areas of the internet where you go and people say, I am very excited about the fact that candidate X is doing this next week. The Cook Political Report is there. The BBC is there. I could go on. By the way, Ballotpedia is also there. Ballotpedia, good example of a website I had never heard of, is now crucial and also sends me an email newsletter every day, which effectively is kind of a cut list. Like you have this series of stories and I look at that and I say, "Mm, a third of those could go on the show. So I look at the third and I call that and maybe half of the third actually feeds directly into the show in some way or another. Now I often reframe them, but that's where I find that stuff. So the beginning of the day, the three in the morning or the four in the morning or whatever I'm feeling that day. Yeah, because you're getting playbook at 3 a.m. as opposed to 6 a.m. like us <laughs> right, on, on the right. East Coast. Here. It is a monstrous tab situation. My ability to manage tabs has gotten, uh, you would think it would get better. It's just gotten way worse. But I've got, you know, the Google sheet from Zach Montalero at at Politico with the debate qualifications open over here. And I've got the Slack talking to the team over there. 
because I am ingesting all the media, I am writing all the scripts, I am performing the thing and I'm editing it because I'm the one who read it and I'm the one who wrote it. When I'm the one who's saying it, I'm often able to on the fly in the booth, change what I'm saying because I realize when I'm saying it out loud, I do cold reads before I do like a, a preview, but when I'm in the booth, I realize that's not quite what I wanted to say. That's not quite right. And pertinent to your previous question, sometimes I find myself realizing as I say say it, this is opinion. And it's not appropriate in this context. Sometimes it is appropriate, but occasionally I look at it and I say, I can just lose this paragraph because this is me just noodling about what I think about this candidate or whether this was a good move or a bad move. That's not the job. So it's fun in a way that I can do that. And because I do the edit, I just chop that part out. And it would be much more difficult if you had a large crew of people and you had to communicate to them like, all right, make sure you cut out that thing where I started talking about this XYZ candidate who said a thing that was probably kind of bad. With 15, 20 plus, I forget where we are at this moment. How do you make the decision is something that I'm just going to pick people uh, out of the Oh, here you, here you go. Marianne You're really going to get them now. Marianne Williamson does, or even and Andrew Yang's probably a good example because he's somebody who, if you look at the numbers, he's now in the middle of the pack somewhere, but he's not somebody that political professionals have treated as a serious candidate, myself included, for a variety of reasons. But how do you make the distinction between, or if you're in a place where it's a group of candidates that are all similarly situated, like Kamala Harris and Amy Klobuchar are all doing five things on one day. How do you decide what is the one you'll cover right? or the one you'll talk about? Or you just mentioned all of them. I think that if I could put that into words, I would probably be a professor. The reason that I can't put that into words well is the reason that I am a reporter. Here's the thing. So when you go out there and you ingest a whole bunch of possibles, right? These are all possible stories for today. You've got a Yang thing. You've got like a Biden thing. You've got a Warren thing. Because every day, believe me, there's, you know, there's at least one to 15 things for everybody. Right. If a candidate's not doing three things in a day, he or she isn't doing his or her job, or more importantly, the campaign right. isn't doing their job because that's, it's a rare day when you're not at least doing three or four things. And like you said, even more. That's why I asked. Here's what it comes down to. I, I think, I mean, by the way, like Andrew Yang is a great example. You're right. Because Yang, by the way, Andrew Yang follows me on Twitter. I don't know why we don't hang out, but like Andrew Yang's folks f talk to me quite a bit because whenever I cover Andrew Yang, I get a lot of feedback and a lot of that's positive, And some of that's kind of like, let me educate you about some things you got wrong. But here's the thing. When I'm looking at a story, I'm trying to say, does this event, does the thing that the person said or did or proposed or whatever, does that actually matter? <laughs> Is there any mattering to the right. objective reality of the rest of the world? Because... Giving you the news is one thing. We kind of say the podcast is about who's up and who's down in the horse race and that stuff. And there is some of that. There is some of like, well, you got to get a certain number of polls to get into the debate. And that's interesting. But it's also about mattering. So a great example of this is on Election Day 2019. So November 5th, New York City votes to approve a ballot measure where they approve ranked choice voting in the city. 
they're not the first to do it, but they're the biggest city to do that. Well, okay, who in this primary field is most associated with ranked choice voting? Well, it's Andrew Yang. And I mean, part of that's because Andrew Yang's press team is like sending me 10,000 emails saying, oh, we've been with this from the start. But part of that is also because I've gone through his platform and all these platforms for like six months to know have these people commented at all on these ideas? And Yang went to New York, apparently voted for it, and, you know, it passed, and that's that's important. And so being able to say, the news is a candidate is behind this thing that could change our elections in probably a positive way, and to explain, here's what that thing is. You may never have heard of this, especially the younger people who are listening, which are, by the way, I think a whole big chunk of the audience here's what ranked choice voting is. Here's a candidate who supports it. Other candidates may also support it. Bada bing, bada boom, three and a half minutes, next topic. Uh, You mentioned polling. And one of the things, there are a lot of advantages of the podcast format. There's obviously, we can use audio, we can use music, we can do a whole bunch of things. But polling strikes me as a particularly difficult thing to transmit and convey to the voter above and beyond television or print. It's the one place where I think we have a big disadvantage because you just can't see the visual. A, how do you decide which polls to talk about? Because again, talking about a situation where you have multiple a day. And then B, how do you go about transmitting that information to a listener in a way that makes it compelling? So on the issue of how to choose which polls matter, if I'm on a day where I'm a little light, you know, my script's a little light, I need some more stuff, I will throw in a quick thing about qualifying. So if on that day, especially a relatively low-ranking candidate has made notable progress toward being in a new DNC debate, I will mention that. It could be a 30-second piece, but I will say, look, there's been a Monmouth poll and that did this. Or I might say there was a poll and it did this, but that did nothing because I have a lot of folks who are they're they're there waiting for a specific candidate to to meet those thresholds. That's becoming less and less the case as obviously the primary wears on. But in the past six months, there's been a lot of interest in the day that so-and-so qualified. So the first thing is, does the poll seem to reveal something useful? Secondly, does the poll seem to be truthful? Is it being blown way out of proportion, which is very common? And see, can I offer something about that poll that is educational, that will mean something for the next poll and the next poll? So that after you've heard me talk about this poll, you might understand a margin of error. You might understand sampling. You might understand why head-to-heads a year out may be a good thing or may not be a good thing. Trying to take those perspectives on a poll. So that's one thing. Selection of poll and why I would cover it, and how I would cover it, and what I would say about it. The second thing is, how in the world do you say a bunch of numbers over the radio? It's very inaccessible to say, well, candidate A got X percent, and candidate B got Y percent. Particularly when you've got 20 of them, and that's a long list. One of the big jokes I had early on is I used to read, you'd go in the crosstabs, and you would get the actual question that was read, And I used to post clips of myself because I would read the question, which is, if the election were held tomorrow, would you vote for? And then there's literally a list of like, you know, 26 people. And I would read it as fast as humanly possible because I'm I'm saying that a human being was paid to do this. You must understand this is how telephone polling works. Initially, I tried to do a slide whistle thing, which I was stealing from Air America. So-and-so went from 10% to 15%. 
when so-and-so went from 92% down to 7%. I tried that for about two shows and that did not work. But what I did find was that in comparative polling, ordering is the thing that matters. So being able to say, this is the list, uh, and you have to cut the list down. You essentially have to say, okay, I'm only going to cover in chunks. So in this top chunk, you have the top person, the next person, the next person, the next person. By the way, does the margin of this poll make that matter or not? Usually the answer is not. Then the next chunk person A, person B, person C, and so on. And so then that coupled with the idea of trying to give you a takeaway, trying to end the segment by saying, this poll means so-and-so is in a debate. This poll means so-and-so is probably doing well in Iowa. This means some, this person's a really great second choice in Iowa, which requires explaining caucuses and second choices. That is more important to me than reading numbers. It's increasingly clear to me that reading numbers or delivering numbers via audio is not the right way to communicate polling. The right way to communicate polling is to say, why does it matter? And what is the relative position of these people? And are they far apart statistically? Or are they clustered together in a way that it doesn't really actually matter? You mentioned history and you mentioned your first exposure to politics and I thought it was an interesting one for the question I'm going to ask now because you mentioned Geraldine Ferraro. Now, Geraldine Ferraro is somebody who was the vice presidential candidate for Walter Mondale, somebody we've interviewed on this podcast, and a campaign that Joe worked on 35 years ago. But a lot of people don't know that Sarah Palin wasn't the first woman on a national ticket. Mm -hmm. um, we're at a point now in our history where anybody under 30 or – in their early 30s, the first president that they really have a recollection of is Bill Clinton. You wouldn't really know much about anything before the age of three or four, five, maybe at the most, <laughs> in a cursory way. Right. So you have – now, and I consider the, the modern political era from really the television age, from John Kennedy. So you basically have 30-plus years of the modern era. How do you talk about – political history and recent political history, I'm not talking about Abraham Lincoln, I'm talking about Ronald Reagan, to a group of listeners, most of whom don't have that pre-existing knowledge. And again, even somebody thinking like something like Geraldine Ferraro is something that, wow, I, I didn't realize that there was a woman on the ticket in 1984. How do you do that, and again, in the short time that you have? When you are a profile reporter, which is what I used to do, and I probably will go back to doing after I complete, complete the podcast in however many years, when you profile someone, you learn very quickly how to develop narrative and how to share, I don't know how to put it, connective narrative, say, this is my experience of a thing, now you tell me. So there's a certain thing about that which has to do with age. It is inextricably tied to your ability to have been alive at the same time as someone else. I'm 41 years old right now as we speak, and I'll stay that way for a while. It puts me at the youngest edge of Gen X, and it puts me in a place where I have a foot in the part of the world where broadcast television and broadcast radio, print media, those were it. That was the media. And then I have a strong foot in the other thing, and that that transition for me occurred after I was an adult. So I was reading print media through college and onward. 
that ability to communicate to people who are younger than I am uh, and older than I am to say, listen, I, I, I may have been very young, but I did see Geraldine Ferraro speak live at the convention. I am pretty aware of that. I remember the Reagan years. Yeah, I was a child, but I was a precocious child and I remember the Reagan years. I had friends who had Ross's boss shirts and yeah, they were like kids, but those are things that happened to me. So because so much of my audience is relatively young, they are first time voters or they may be like right in that pocket of people who are kind of becoming interested in politics they may not have lived through those things. They didn't have the sort of cultural osmosis of saying, I know what it was like when the Berlin Wall came down and we were all kind of freaking out or even 9-11, like any of these large, large things or Chernobyl, the Challenger, like all these events were things that I actually recall and that affected me greatly. So <laughs> to actually answer your question, when I go to do a story, and it involves something that I lived through, I can give someone a personal anecdote that I believe to be basically historically valid. A good example of this recently on the show, well, it was probably early on the show actually, was the Anita Hill stuff during Clarence Thomas hearings in trying to explain why people were bringing that up in the context of Joe Biden entering the race. I remember that. That was what was on the media. I remember the shock about some of those words being used on television uh, and being spoken on the radio. Do we say these words that were said in the halls of Congress? Oh, my. So being able to communicate that to a younger generation is valuable. The issue I have is I can't go in reverse. If I go in reverse, I am well out of my depth, right? I don't know about Lincoln. I'm assuming the people who've written written or read books about Lincoln know quite a bit more. But you end up with this window that you have access to. And right now, that window for me is essentially the 80s, the 90s, the 2000s. That window strikes me as being really pretty pertinent to what we're dealing with right now in the election. And so being able to say I was there and consuming news and paying attention as a consumer of news allows me to tell those stories. Now, it was making me think when you were just talking about that, that one of the oddities of this particular election, and you mentioned Joe Biden as we have a candidate, and you mentioned your age, he was elected to the United States Senate before you were born. Right. <laughs> I was three. But uh, and don't remember it. But uh, is there any difficulty in things like I remember one of the issues back a while ago was Biden and his stance on busing. Do you have to do additional research because and I wasn't somebody who grew up knowing the issue either I, because of my political career and my history background. I, I had to learn about it. But is it something as a journalist who, again, didn't necessarily cover politics, do you have to go back and say, well, what the heck was all that about? And, or, 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 is it, or is it something that isn't necessarily topical because, again, unless you are 60 or older, no one knows that issue. Uh, it's much like Watergate today. I mean, there are people, and Joe was quite young, but you have to be a minimum age of 60 to remember Watergate at any level. How do you, how do you deal with that part? Yeah. I mean, again, it's instinctive and I, I'll try to examine it for you. When you have an issue like busing, so I probably experienced the effects of busing in some tertiary form. 
But I wasn't there for the debate about the busing. I wasn't there for all this stuff. The other thing that might be salient to understand about where I'm coming from is that I was born in Maine. I lived all over the Northeast. We moved a lot when I was a child. And I ended up in Florida. And my family is from West Virginia. And so I spent... I split my time as a child between Florida, mostly, but not exclusively, and West Virginia. And West Virginia, for all its being the North, technically, is the South. It has always been the South. It's still the South. But it was really the South in the 80s. So I had an experience of the South. That's a generic experience. And so when I approach something like busing, or any of these sort of civil rights issues, or basically all the stuff that I wasn't there for... I look at it and I ask myself, can I educate myself sufficiently to tell this story succinctly and correctly? And if I cannot, I, I bail because the show is 15 to 20 minutes long. It's every day. But the good news is the great majority of the stories that matter, I can either say this is important and we're going to deal with it later in its own show or this is important, and here's someone who wrote a full-length article about it. It's in the show notes. If you are interested, you really ought to go and look at the source material. And I am really obsessed with saying, this is where I got this. This is who I am quoting. This is who is speaking right now. Go look at the source material, right? So I have that ability to bail out and say, look, I can't give you you know, a blow-by-blow -blow of XYZ issue that I wasn't around for. I have that luxury, and that's nice, but there are cases where I say, I really have to understand this, and so I just have to go educate myself in a crash course right away, and a lot of that stuff is legal. A lot of that stuff is reading the bills. I think it was our fourth show, maybe our fifth show, was I read the entire Medicare for All bill, which was really something. And then I did a show about it because one of the biggest questions I kept getting was, what is Medicare for All? boil it down. And I felt that I couldn't do that show if I had not read the bill. And yeah, I read a lot of like summaries and people who had talked through what their take on it was. That's useful. But you got to read, you got to read the bill. So I've read so many bills at this point that, you know, my eyes are kind of rolling around, but you got to, you got to choose your battles. A short show, sometimes you hit on those lucky things. And those are the ones that I, I spend the most energy on. Those lucky ones where I say, aha, I can give you something good in two minutes. And if I can't, and I have to say, sorry, I can't give you all of this, but here's a good place to go look instead. That's interesting. You mentioned that the show has to post by 5 p.m. Eastern time. So far, have you ever been in a situation where in the news business, we call it uh, <laughs> overtaken by events, where you say, I wish I had just done it an hour later? Or do you, have you done a special episode? Or do you just say, you know what, that's tomorrow? So far, we're, we're almost precisely six months in. I have not allowed myself to succumb to that uh, desire. I have that desire... I wouldn't say most days, but there are many days because the reality is for me, it's 2 p.m. That's that's the drop dead date. And so because I'm trying to be efficient, I'm actually done at 1 p.m. I wrote the material early in the morning. I recorded it at 10 a.m. or something. I'm editing it, putting it in order, assembling show notes, doing all that stuff. So there are often cases where in the middle of that process, all of a sudden something incredible breaks. And I have to throw out some portion of the thing, go back, 
jump in the booth, which fortunately it's right behind me and just set it on fire, right? Do my best as quickly as I can. That happens mm, every couple of weeks that I got to throw something out, throw something in. And that's tough. That's different than a lot of other beats because like in science and tech, it's rare that that would happen. In politics, it happens almost every day, especially now with things like impeachment, because those hearings happen after I am done writing my script. So effectively with impeachment, I'm covering a day late. It's not really what happened today. It's what happened yesterday after I recorded. I guess the other way to say that is uh, in high school, I worked quite a bit on school newspapers and... The experience, this was print, and so I do have experience with print deadlines there and then later as an actual print journalist. So knowing about drop dead times and when to make those calls does feel kind of natural to me. So you mentioned one of the things you didn't consider was what it would be like covering politics on a daily basis, again, for somebody who's has an emotional connection to current events, the previous election, the previous inauguration. What has surprised you so far about covering election 2020 that you didn't count on? I guess I have two things. First off, I didn't think that the field would be so large and that that largeness of field would matter to so many listeners. So for instance, there was a time there, it's it's largely over now, but there was a time if I went five days without mentioning some candidate, I would get a lot of sort of fire on Twitter. Why haven't you talked about my person? My person's important. Do you believe that's organic or do you believe that that's sort of a a function of a modern campaign? Because, you know, you mentioned yeah. Yang and Marianne Williamson and Joe and I have experienced this too. Some of those things to me, and maybe I'm wrong, but some of those things to me feel a bit manufactured. Did you, do you get that sense? Or is it just, it doesn't really matter. You have to be responsible. Yeah, no, I've gotten the manufactured stuff. The thing, the thing that's interesting to me is that I have people who have, I mean, friendship is the wrong word, but strong acquaintances who are highly partisan toward one of these candidates or another, right? And they have established, by the way, one of my core things is my direct messages on Twitter are open, which means I get a lot of direct messages on Twitter from a lot of people. Some of them are journalists. Right. A lot of them are, it's unclear. I tried that for a day. It's a tough thing to do. Yeah, <laughs> right. And, I mean, and to answer your question, I mean, is it organic? Yes or no? Mostly, yes. Mostly for me, yes, I think. Because I have ongoing discussions with the same person and I go on, I try basically try to go and look at this person and say, does this person appear to actually exist? Some of this is a hundred percent robots or some other function where I get pinged with strange candidate based stuff. And I mean, it just sort of sets off the, I don't know what to call it, the bozo alarm or something where you're like, this doesn't seem like a human is doing it. The, the good news for me is I've been exposed to relatively little of what I think is fraudulent or purely manufactured. The bad news, to be frank, is that we've had such a large field that there are so many people who really genuinely care and they want a piece of the 15 minutes. They're like, okay, we've got 22 candidates. Give me 14 seconds, you know, give me something. And I'm kind of like, that's not really how this works. I have to make decisions. It's not an equal time situation, right. correct? Right, right. And so the good news kind of is that that's died down a bit. And, and the one shorter corollary to that is the people who contact me online often ask questions. And those questions seem to belie 
a real genuine desire for knowledge. Sometimes people ask you a question to set you off, right? Or to express a political point of view. The vast majority of the people who communicate to me are saying, I want to understand the answer to a thing that I don't know. And I don't really want to share my name. And I don't really know how to look it up myself. And a lot of these listeners are younger because they'll tell me I'm a younger listener. And that's the thing about doing the show that really makes me happy. There was a great question at some point which says, what if somebody drops out and they still have a bunch of money in their campaign account? What happens? Part of me says, you can Google that. But the other part of me says, I can Google that and I can give you a comprehensive three-minute segment that lays out the things the FEC tells you you can do and tell you a few anecdotes that are actually useful in understanding why, for example, Sanford can just jump into the primary and have more than a million bucks. Well, why? Because he had previous campaign funds and he didn't have a lot of options, so it was just kind of sitting there. And this is why some candidates suspend and don't drop out, Mm -hmm. never drop out. The thing about dropping out, that's another thing that surprised me, too. I, I would never have thought we'd, ha- we'd have 17 active majors in the Democratic field at this point, this late in the in the game. Uh, by the way, another, another big rule I had was I don't ever want to tell anybody it's your turn to drop out. That's not my decision to make. If you're into somebody who has probably no chance to make it, okay, that's that's your thing. They're probably going to get decreasing amounts of coverage on my show because they're probably not doing a whole lot that's actually moving conversations or meaning a lot. But if they do, I'll definitely still cover them. And that still happens. So having the ability to have a, an open mind and a wide field is still useful. Joe and I tried that. The only exception to that rule, both being New Yorkers, is that we joined our fellow New Yorkers and our mayor hadn't uh, united the city in in any fashion except for the universal belief that all of us had that he should not run for president. And and he was obviously... (laughs) Yeah, that that leaked out into my world as well. Uh, I got the feeling New Yorkers... Yeah, it's hard hard not to. We don't really, you know, Yankees, Mets, Jets, Giants. Mm. It's it's hard to get you New Yorkers to agree on anything. But that everyone agreed on. But I, I feel your pain on that issue because we struggle often with the same things and what's a serious candidate, what's not. I mean, I can I'll pick on the billionaire for a minute. I still have not met a single human being who actually likes Tom Steyer and supports Tom Steyer. I can't find mm-hmm. that person. But short of that, like you said, there's a whole bunch of people out there who have strong views of these candidates, whether or not people like Joe or me or somebody who's a journalist like you, whatever we believe in their chances of success, you still have to treat them a certain way because they have people who believe in them. And we all who went through 2016 had that same moment with a certain candidate who wound up winning the Republican nomination and becoming president. I'll I'll leave it at that. Chris Higgins, thank you so much. The podcast is called Election Ride Home. Uh, As Chris said, you can get it every day by 5 p.m. Eastern time. It's 15 to 20 minutes. It's a great listen. We listen to it around here. We encourage you to. Chris, please keep up the good work. Please keep up what you're doing. And thank you for what you're doing. Thanks, Adam. It's great to be here. And also, I really like y'all's podcast, too. Well, thank you. To be continued, and we'll check back in with you and see how see how that field is in another three or four months. Thanks, man. <laughs> Much larger, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Okay. Thanks, man. Thank you for listening to Words Matter. Please rate and review Words Matter on Apple Podcasts and other podcast providers. 